The Rural Health Voice, Episode 81, Food Insecurity. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Why don't people make better choices when buying and preparing their food? Dr. Tori Mackle from University of Virginia's College at Wise and Dr. Wendy Welch from the Southwest Virginia Graduate Medical Education Consortium joined me to discuss food insecurity. So, Tori, Wendy, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. So much appreciate you being to spend your time with us. You know, Wendy, you've been on the podcast before, so we've got some background on you. Uh, but, but Tori, let me have a little bit of information. I, I know you're at the University of Wise. How did you kind of get to where you are? So it's kind of a circuitous route. I actually did my bachelor's degree in wildlife and fishery sciences at Texas A&M in College Station, Texas. I grew up in Texas, so I'm very familiar with, with that region of the, the country. Um, and then I ended up in Florida for graduate school where I completed a master's degree in biochemistry and a doctoral degree in biomedical sciences with a concentration in biochemistry and molecular biology. So after that, I was invited to join the faculty at UVA WISE. Uh, I am currently on faculty there as an assistant professor of biochemistry, and my lab does a lot of different things, and those are all completely separate from the work that we do in what we're here to talk about today, which is the Future Professionals Club, um, formerly known as the Pre-Professional Club. They, they keep telling me, Dr. Mackle, you have to remember that we changed the name of the club. You have to update it. So we're, we're very fancy now, Future Professionals Club. Future professionals. Future professionals what? Future professionals of everything. Uh, pre-meds, pre-vet, pre-dental, anything you could possibly dream of. They're all in that club working together. So it's, it's really cool to be part of this kind of um, melting pot of different interests, um, especially from an academic perspective, because I get to watch them all learn and grow, all of my students, inside and outside the classroom. So that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things, you know, as I travel around and hear different presentations about the disparities in our rural communities is people talk a lot about food deserts. Um, now, I know, Wendy, you, you've got a, a, a quibble with the term food deserts. What, what is a food desert and what should we do about it? Take it away, Tori. So food deserts, by definition, are areas that are relatively isolated, and this can be things like inner city locations or even extremely rural areas, areas that are perhaps disconnected from the normal resources that people that live in, say, suburbs might have. For example, going to the grocery store, um, they may not be able to find you know, a, a fresh head of broccoli, whereas somebody who lives in a suburb can go to Whole Foods or whatever grocery store they please and find any number of fresh produce items. Um, people that live in food deserts don't have that luxury. There's, there's very scarce resources in terms of fresh produce if, uh, uh, if those resources are available at all. So the reason why we use food desert is to refer to areas where usually local grocery stores, so mom and pop shops, small bodegas are, are starting to actually have to withdraw from the areas if they're in urban communities or in rural areas where there are grocery stores where you can buy food items, but they lack fresh produce entirely. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, the other term I've heard is food insecurity. And I think that's starting to become more common in, in the literature. But you know, for the two of you, addressing food insecurity isn't like the, the core of your job description. Why are you looking at this? <laughs> you want to go first, Tori? Uh, sure, I can. I can go first. So, um, how do I even begin? It, it's kind of a personal passion of mine, and uh, that stems from the fact that I come from a family where many people grew up in poverty and experienced the, having to ask the question of, "Am I going to be able to eat today? What am I going to be able to eat? Am I going to be able to feed all of my kids?" So those are questions that were not uncommon for me to hear when I was growing up, not necessarily in my own household the whole time, but definitely I had friends and family members and cousins and all of those kinds of people that did experience food insecurity. And so it's an issue that's really close to my heart in that I feel no one should ever have to ask that question or have to decide between, do I go to the dentist to get my my tooth taken care of or do I eat today? These are questions no one should ever have to ask, in, in my personal opinion. And so it's become, I, I guess you could say, a personal crusade in that regard, in that I've decided um, I'm going to be loud and I'm going to be as annoying as possible about food insecurity until we resolve this problem. Because I feel, especially in rural communities where farming was once the backbone of these communities, we're losing all of these really amazing resources to you know, um, urbanization and industrialism and all these kinds of isms that you could bring up. But for me, food insecurity is something that puts a lot of pressure and stress on, on people, especially young kids. So young kids go to school and they're like, well, what, am I going to have to eat lunch today? Or is there social stigma attached with getting free lunch from the school? These are things that I also saw growing up was the kids that were on free lunch were often treated differently than the kids that were able to bring lunch from home. So that's a lot of different ways of saying that it's a very um, personal issue for me in that I have seen a lot of, of the damage that food insecurity, especially chronic high-stress food insecurity, can do to people. And... Um, Luckily, I happened to meet Wendy and we happened to meld minds and develop this really amazing project and, and um, accrue all of these resources that were able to actually do something about food insecurity in our communities. What about you, Wendy? Well, that's a good cue for it because the project Tori's talking about at Inman Village, it, which is a housing project in rural Appalachia, um, started as a medical project. We were going to take... Uh, residents in their um, second and third year of education. They were already qualified as doctors, but they were basically learning to be uh, independent doctors. We wanted to take them to Inman to show what the patients were up against there, basically, because over and over again, when I'm teaching cultural competency to regional physicians, I hear their questions around how patients eat and the uh, diabetes and obesity and blood pressure and chronic kidney disease development referred to in a judgmental way. And I think it, it isn't the starting point of the doctor. It becomes inevitable under the weight of that burden in our region. And the doctors didn't start their questions with, what are your choices? 
they started the questions with, why aren't you making better choices? And I don't think they intended to do that. We have some doctors in our region who grew up food insecure, and they know, they understand very well what these people are up against. But the overall assumption that people had good choices to make and weren't making them, and that education would change this mindset is inherently, tragically, and permanently flawed. Again, I'm sorry, we're going to have to go back to the term food deserts because it has to do with my, my distaste with that term. There's broccoli in Southwest Virginia, but the people in Inman Village can't buy it because they can't get to the farmer's market where it's sold once a week as their only option to reach it. There is no other grocery store that sells fresh produce in Southwest Virginia. In, in Sorry, in Appalachia, there is no grocery store. There's nowhere to buy fresh broccoli except the farmer's market in the nearby town once a week. They don't have transport to get there and they don't have money to spend at that farmer's market. Now the farmer's market started to take EBT and SNAP benefits and we said, ha ha, problem solved. They went to the farmer's market to use the EBT and SNAP and found resistance. The machine didn't work. The farmers didn't want to take it. The farmers don't like doing that because, put bluntly, cash in your pocket is cash in your pocket. EBT and SNAP is taxable income. So there were problems with this. So if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's taught us the importance of logistics and movement of goods and services and the ability to have cash on hand to pay for those services when they arrive. And that's what we're up against. We're up against the combination of the logistics of where the food is. It's on the farms. The farmers want to sell it. Who needs the food? The people who can't afford to buy it. And who is judging that population? The people who are supposed to look after them. That's not a good combination. You know, the question I get probably most often on this topic is, so it's rural. Why don't you just grow what you need? <laughs> That's so, a great question. Tori, I, you and I have had multiple conversations with really nice people from many different places who wanted to bring resources to us. And the first thing yes. every single person has said is, let's start a garden. Did you know that it is illegal? for people in housing projects to garden. It change. it is. Wait, what? Wait, I'm, wait, I'm, what? I'm, I'm going to walk you through this real slow because if you alter the structure of the housing in which you live, you have committed an illegal act like painting things, you know, that kind of stuff. You are not legally allowed to alter the structure in which you live according to the executive director of the housing authority for the county in which we work. We have since heard that this gets interpreted differently in different places, but the the rule is steadfast. You are not allowed to alter the structure. Some people say gardening is an alteration. It's not permanent. Some people say, literally, it gets worse. Putting a grill outside is permanent because you could ignite a spark and that's an alteration. It, it depends on who's interpreting the law and how annoyed they are that we showed up, basically. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, so one of the additional compounding factors, especially in reclaimed coal mining country, is that the soil is not necessarily 
healthy or safe for gardening. Um, so there are a lot of problems that we need to consider in terms of like environmental health and safety as well. Um, because the property that we visit currently is built on reclaimed coal mining ground. Um, and so there are a lot of questions that would need to be answered before, you know, I would feel comfortable telling people, yeah, plant something in the ground there. It'll grow. Sure, it'll grow, but is it safe to eat? That's another question. <laughs> and in fact, in my, my background, um, I've taken an herbalism course and been looking at foraged foods because that's always been a vague interest of mine. I've always been interested in what the earth offers us up for free. And there's a stream that runs through the Inman Village property and sea grapes grow in the stream. Well, sea grapes do all sorts of lovely things medicinally. They can make tinctures, they can make teas. You can, you know, there are things you can do with sea grapes. We tested the stream. Uh, we got the one of Tori's colleagues from the science department to come out and they, <laughs> they said, all right, ladies and gentlemen and non-binary people, here is what you need to know about this stream. You not only don't want to eat what grows from it, you don't want to get out of your car near it. It had yep. an abnormally high load of fecal matter in it. And when we asked around, of course, the elderly local people from the village up the way said, well, duh, our straight pipe runs into that stream. Of course it does. Of course it does. Yep. So apparently what happened with the straight pipes is that when they redid a lot of the um, urban planning for the communities that are upstream from uh, Inman Village. They were grandfathered in, basically. They were like, no, okay, you can keep your straight pipes that dump into this particular creek. Now, if you go out to this property and look at the creek, it is lush, it is beautiful, it is as green as can be, but it's not safe. So, what it looks like on the surface is very, very different from what uh, the testing and the science and the analysis that we've done of, of the resources there. So there's a lot of stuff that would be usable if this wasn't a problem with the straight pipes dumping into the creek. But because that's a fact and there's not much we can really do about that at this point in time, this is another reality we have to live with is that we can't work with the, with the soil, with the water that's already there. Sure. Well, and the other thing I think you know, when, when people say, well, why don't they just grow their own vegetables? Yeah, you know, there's a big difference between having a pot of tomatoes on your front porch and growing enough food to be able to sustain yourself. Those are two very different things. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you're going to have a big enough garden to feed your family, you need a decent amount of relatively flat space that's in the sun um, with decent soil. Um, you know, Wendy's been to my house. Wendy, where do you see a, a, a flat section of land big enough to grow <laughs> a single potato? Uh, plus, you've got deer and bear. Well, there's that. Mm -hmm. there Appalachia, that. the yeah, town of Appalachia everything. and Inman Village. Yeah, Inman Village actually has bears behind it. Yeah. So if country. we did grow gardens, would it be safe? You know, it's we're stuck. Well, my bears do like the wild blueberries that grow. I can imagine a cultivated blueberry would be so much sweeter. Yes. Yes. Right. So what do healthcare providers need to know about food insecurity? They need to understand that people are making choices about their family based on personal happiness and the best they can do. They are not 
uncognizant of the health needs. They're not, um, let's use a loaded word, they're not ignorant of what it means to fry things in butter. They can't afford olive oil. They get butter in the feeding Southwest Virginia packages. They get free butter. If you want them to eat better, give them free olive oil. It's, it is a very difficult and delicate balance because the things we do to keep people from literally starving make them unhealthy. And I don't want to see anyone starve. And if I'm being honest, I don't want my tax dollars to pay for olive oil, but I'd rather give them olive oil on my tax dollars than pay for the Medicaid crash that's coming because of the unhealthy nature of how we're handling people who are in situational or generational poverty, if that makes sense. And even then, when you go and look at the items that are actually available on the shelves in the, say, two grocery stores in the town of Appalachia that serve the community that we're working in in Min Village, not only is are, are both of those grocery stores about two and a half miles away from the property, many people don't have cars. There's minimal public transportation in our region, and so getting to the grocery store is a chore in and of itself. Not, not to mention, do I have enough money to buy all of the resources that I, I need to get me through this month, to get my family through this month? So when you actually go into the store and look at what's on the shelves, we're, we're working with what we have, we being you know, the collective here in this community, because people that live in Inman Village aren't the only people that shop at these grocery stores. But the point is that it's a lot of shelf-stable food. Shelf-stable foods contain a lot of preservatives to keep them shelf-stable, to prevent them from spoiling or becoming rancid over time. The problem with that is that the preservatives themselves also have health implications long-term. So if we're relying solely on shelf-stable, affordable, accessible food sources, then we're necessarily stacking the deck against you know, positive health outcomes in this particular region. You're, you're demanding people perform a certain way, but you're not giving them the right tools to do so. And let me clarify two things about that. First of all, we said there were no grocery stores in Appalachia. The two stores Tori's referring to are a Dollar General, which has oh, a section, uh, a frozen, frozen food section, and a little independent store, very like a Big Lots, um, that buys directly from Kirkland, um, and they have <laughs> really high-end um, upscale foods, and they have shelf-stable foods and a, a huge freezer section. Yes. So, first of all, there's that. But the, secondly, one of the problems we've had with funders and with people who want to assist us in the project is their immediate um, lecturing of, mm. well, you need to eat fresh food. And we had... Before we started the project, we met with a couple of people from the village, and uh, his name was Dan. He and his wife have since moved on, and he was the best. He said, if y'all are going to come in here and tell us not to fry stuff, you can stop now. <laughs> we like, okay. He said, and another thing, if you're going to tell us to buy everything fresh, you can give it up because we only get to the store once a week, and you get that yeah, nice fresh head of lettuce home, and the next day it's brown, and you spent $3 on it. He says, I buy everything in a can because it's affordable, and if I don't get to it, if somebody invites me over for dinner, hallelujah, I get to go to dinner at somebody else's house, my can of peas is still there when I get home. The lettuce won't be. 
it, it's a very practical, functional, live-in-the-minute world that we are dealing with. Um, Tori, do you want to talk about when we go door-to-door? Right. So, so Wendy mentioned living in the moment. And so um, amongst ourselves, we refer to that as the immediacy of this population. Meaning if I were to ask you right now, are you hungry? Would you think about, am I going to be hungry later? Do I have something for dinner later? Should I go grab a plate and bring it home? Or because I'm not hungry now, is that going to dictate how I respond to this question? So one of the things that we're observing as we go door to door is that when we talk to people, they're answering questions based on how they feel right in that second when I ask them, are you hungry? Do you want to come eat dinner with us? We're doing you know, X, Y, and Z thing over at the picnic pavilion. We'll be there till seven o'clock. Well, I'm not thinking about what I'm going to be doing at 7 o'clock. I'm thinking about what I'm doing right now. And so the immediacy of this, the, the, this community and other communities like this is something that I, I personally did not anticipate. Um, so that was a very um, sharp learning curve for me to, to start thinking about how do I convince you to come and make a plate for later even though you're not hungry now? And that translates so quickly into health. I was literally on a call about an hour before we recorded this with a work group for chronic kidney disease. Uh, the National Kidney Foundation is trying to increase the diagnosis and treatment of it, um, not necessarily exclusively in rural communities, but certainly inclusive of rural communities. And one of the things they identify as a barrier is when you are in stage one or two of chronic kidney disease, you don't feel that bad. You, you don't feel ill. Your doctor can say you're headed for a crash, but you're not crashing. And you've got to figure out what you're going to have for dinner. We're not talking about the middle class stress of life or the additional stress of the mm-hmm. pandemic that's come down on all of us. We're talking about people who literally may be at the end of the month and do not have food in their cupboards. The immediacy of the moment is not crap, I have chronic kidney disease. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. The immediacy of the moment is my daughter and I need to eat dinner. Is the food kitchen open? Do I have anything in the cupboard? Is my friend mm-hmm. coming home from work? It's it's the immediacy in health and well-being as well as in uh, healthy eating. So it's interesting that you mentioned the National Kidney Association as well, because the early stages of kidney disease are highly manageable with dietary change. Mm-hmm. So reducing the amount of, of phosphorus and balancing you know, calcium and potassium in your diet, those are things that you do have control over if you have the time, resources, energy, mental bandwidth, etc., to actually look at the ingredients that you're using and say, okay, I can substitute, you know, my, my red meat for ground turkey or chicken or whatever. But that also presumes that you have access to all of those resources. So that's a really interesting idea that you're touching on, Wendy, by, by focusing on chronic kidney disease with that particular work group. Because that will also uh, quickly run into the problem of resource limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we, we've talked around this a little bit, but I don't think I've had a chance to directly ask you. So what exactly are you doing with this community? <laughs> you want to start Tori? Yeah. Uh, well, so a better question is what aren't we doing? We've, we're doing <laughs> a lot of different things. 
Um, I, <laughs> we hang out with them to the point they're going to get tired of us one day. So we were out there last month. We did a burger cookout. We made grilled corn, homemade potato salad. We grilled cheeseburgers. And usually the draw for earlier in the day preceding mealtime is we have a craft circle for the kids that live in the housing complex. We've also started putting together a craft circle for the adults because we notice a lot of, um, I won't say jealousy, but a little bit of like, oh, I wish I could do some arts and crafts. That would be cool from the adults that live in the complex. And we were like, why can't you do arts and crafts? We can make that happen. That's really great. So we are putting together uh, a community craft circle uh, right now. We've done an Easter egg hunt, a Christmas market, you know, community dinners, all kinds of different things we've, we've done when we're going out there. Uh, behind the scenes, the students that are part of the club that I am the faculty sponsor for, the Future Professionals Club at UVA Wise, um, they are doing all of the meal planning. They're putting together the shopping lists. They're figuring out which items can we substitute for healthier alternatives. Does the cooking method actually make a difference for the nutritional value of these items when we actually serve them? And so we um, have seen this project grow oh, just exponentially in the past few months. Um, there is kind of a lull right now because it is summer, so people are off doing summer vacation things. I wouldn't know what that's like. But um, the point is that we're doing a lot of different things. It's not just coming into this community and saying, here, come eat, or here, we've brought you a meal. It's saying, come hang out with us. We're doing all of this other stuff anyway. If you happen to be interested in that, you are welcome to, to come hang out too. So making it more of a social event rather than following along in the same footsteps that um, the education approach took in the early days of the project. So community trust is really what we're, we're working oh, on yeah. fostering right now. And trust is one of those, those big bad words that a lot of people that focus on community engagement projects like what we are currently doing they run into those barriers and then don't know how to ask the right questions to traverse those barriers. And that brings us, I think, to what is a graduate medical education consortium doing providing haircuts and school supplies to kids going back to school? Because that's what we're doing um, th at the end of this month when we go out there. Um, we're we're going to do um, free haircuts and free back to school supplies. And I think there's an assumption that if you're showing a mercy ministry, what would be tagged as a mercy ministry in a, a church setting or an educational project in an academic setting, in the medical side of things, it's like, what? why would we do that? Well, the pre-professional, sorry, the future professional club includes you. kids who are seniors who have taken the MCAT and are applying to medical schools. And one of them wrote her essay on going to Inman Village, and she basically said, everything I thought I understood about poverty was wrong. She grew up in a 
uh, what would be called a working class family. They weren't food insecure, but they were tight. And she thought she understood a lot of things. She said, I went out there and I looked around and this is one of the girls who now is like the Pied Piper. Kids come flocking to her when she appears. Oh my gosh, they love her. They come running, you know. And she said in her essay, I did not understand the long-term grinding effect of poverty. I didn't understand that once you get into a place like Inman Village, it's not an ugly place. It's not a miserable place, but it is um, an entrapment of help. Once you get in, it's really hard to get out. And she had never known that before. Now, this kid, this 18-year-old who, well, she's actually 20 now, this 20-year-old who understands all of these things is going to go to a medical school where, among other things, she's going to hear, because I've heard it, I've heard it coming out of the faculty mouths of uh, graduate medical education and medical education providers, these people will never change. She will be our best asset in a re-education campaign on that needing to come out of medicine. These people will never change. The poor are not like us because they make bad choices. They're poor because they made bad choices, which she knows is flat not true because her family's poor. But the the ability of putting these, I'm going to call them kids, don't yell at me, Tori, these future (laughs) professionals into these situations where they are packing the meals and meeting the people. And they're not going out there with what one person called hero energy. They're going out there to learn and absorb. We've, we've, had, we've had many people offer to be partners with us in this project. And they show up with hero energy. Here's where we're going to put the blood monitors. Here's where we're going to put the, the uh, educational uh, screening on your prescriptions. The, the ability to listen to the people Mm -hmm. who are in Inman Village comes from the younger people. It's not that we don't appreciate getting the free services from from the heroics of older established providers. It's that one of the Inman Village women, when one of the doctors who had come to set up the um, clinic that didn't go, didn't get any takers, we asked one of the women that we knew pretty well from the village later, why didn't anyone come? And she said, well, doctors and nurses, they're like cops and lawyers, aren't they? The better, the better off you are, the more you stay away from them. You, you don't want to get involved with those people because it's nothing but trouble. So, ah, thank you. And that's why the Graduate Medical Education Consortium is there to work with the future doctors who are now college seniors to change that trajectory. Right. So along those same lines, the the response of, well, they're like cops and lawyers, on the surface, I, I suppose that that felt to me like it should have been obvious. When I heard that, I was like, oh my God, duh. Like, n- no, no wonder nobody wanted to participate. We're strangers in uniforms coming to this location saying, let me take your blood pressure. Um any sane person would react that way. Be like, mm, I don't know you, no thank you. But it's more than that. It, it's a reinforcement of 
other problems. So, so that led us to a really interesting learning opportunity where we had to figure out how to reformulate the questions that we were asking, which is not, why don't you want my help? The question should be, what can I do to make you feel comfortable seeking help or accepting help when it's offered? So that simple reformulation of the questions that we're asking and, and that kind of approach can translate very easily to medical practice, in my personal opinion. Um, reformulating the questions you're asking opens up a whole new array of, of answers that you can receive. So the learning process here is not necessarily learning about, you know, the, the day-to-day limitations that people face living in Inman Village. It's how do we dig deeper? How do we actually get to the real root cause of these problems? And what can we do that's actually meaningful and helpful, not only in the short term, but long term? So Wendy mentioned um, a little bit ago that we're doing a school supply drive right now. So during our kind of brainstorming sessions, we were thinking, okay, what can we do that would actually make a difference to the parents and to the kids right now, today? And the answer was, well, they're coming up back to school. Everybody wants to look good to go back to school and everyone needs to have their school supplies. That way, you know, they, they come prepared. There's not the question of, oh, so-and-so didn't bring the supplies that they were supposed to. Now the teacher has to you know, give them a pencil or whatever. So by fulfilling that need, that very immediate, easily recognizable need, we're building a bridge that says, what can I do to help you that's actually meaningful? And I'm listening. If you want to tell me other things that would immediately resolve some stress factor in your life, we will do what we can to help address that. It's probably worth mentioning, too, that um, we have had some awesome partners on this project. We can't say enough yes. good about Debusk College of Medicine. If it sounds like we're dissing medical practice overall, we're not. It's just that the ability to come humbly into a situation mm-hmm. and be a good listener is an amazing skill. Uh, we've also seen it in uh, the Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine, The what their dean calls a logical compassion needs to come to the table. Uh, DCOM, Cassie Jones and Mary Beth Babos have been um, faculty members who have gotten involved with us and are about to involve their students with us. And Cassie Jones came with her husband, sat down at the dinner we were serving and began to engage people in conversation, which the students hadn't been able to do because they were running around trying to get things done and because some of them are naturally shy. Well, within 10 minutes, she had the entire room listening to this lovely man tell us his life story. And it was a beautiful story. His college graduation, he was on a basketball hall of fame wall at the college where Tori teaches. He, he was just an awesome person, but none of us had prioritized listening over getting the work done. And Cassie taught us that. And she is a faculty member at a college of medicine. So I feel really comfortable about the future of those students. Great. Aside from barriers to good nutrition, what else do healthcare providers need to know about how people live and their impact on health? They're making the best choices they can, given the choices they've got and the information they have, and they love themselves and their family. They're not stupid and they're not suicidal, and they're not flaunting medical advice because they want to. 
they are doing what they think is best for themselves, given what they've got to work with. Right. And I do think that there's so much value even in small bits of joy. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. looking at the state of the world today, um, things might not look so great. So if I have the opportunity to sit for five minutes and enjoy a candy bar or something, I see no problem in doing that. The problem arises when, you know, that, that... joy becomes completely absent when you don't have the ability to to choose that. Um, and so everyone deserves joy is the point, is what I'm saying. And we can't take that away from people just because they're poor. That's, that's, not, that's not the job of medical practitioners. And that's not our job either. Now, you, you mentioned the concept that the... the the doctors and their coats are basically the equivalent of cops, which I, I, the more that I think about, the more that makes sense. What can we do to help address that sense of mistrust? Well, um, projects like this are pretty awesome. Um, The residents from the family medicine program in our region um, from our local healthcare system started coming out on their own as volunteers and they came in civilian clothing and they just sat around uh, two two of them fired up the grill and did the cooking and uh, three of them walked door to door and one of them sat in the picnic pavilion and greeted people. And when it got dark, she had a flashlight and she showed him over the bridge. There's a uh, bridge that connects the pavilion, which is owned by the town, to the property, which is owned by the uh, authority that runs it. I I will say, shout out to the town for fixing that bridge because that removed a very immediate barrier to participation. Yeah, it did. It was unsafe, um, and they fixed it. It, it. Yeah, there were toddler-sized holes in the planks. Like, it was crazy. Oh my. If you stepped wrong in the dark, you'd go, whoop, right into that creek we were talking about earlier, which, yeah, good luck. Uh, God bless Fred <laughs> Lunsford and all of his crew there and in the yes. town of Appalachia. <laughs> awesome people. Yes. Um, so, anyway, the, the residents came, and they sat, and they were just people. And then the next month, when they came back... One of them, she had been on clinical rotation to the OBGYN clinic, and one of the people in the village was pregnant with her first child, and she brought her a little layette set that she'd bought especially for her. And it's just, you know, that girl is not going to be afraid of her doctor. Look what my doctor gave me. Isn't this pretty? Now, we're not, you know, recommending the removal of barriers for medical professionals by any stretch of the imagination, but the humanization of this mm-hmm. 28-year-old doctor and this 21-year-old girl just talking to each other about how yellow is their favorite color and aren't the ruffles on the dress pretty, it doesn't get any better than that. If, you know, and, and that's fascinating to think about from just a, a pure outside looking in, but it seems you know, very hard to implement on a larger scale. I mean, yeah. you are working with one housing community out of the, I don't know, thousands, millions of, of housing communities in rural America. How, how do you upscale something like that? I don't think you can. I think it has to stay local. And I don't, 
you know, I mean, if suddenly the federal government wants to pay for a program where residents spend a month in embedded or um, <laughs> renting an apartment inside a housing project, more power to them. I don't see that happening. It's not realistic. And and I think this is working because it's a small project. I don't see this. This is one of the problems with solving a problem where policy isn't going to help. I can't see policy fixing this. I can see individual choices by people willing to put themselves out there to meet other people and, and challenging then in the future medical professionals who say these people will never change. Excuse me. I, what are you talking about? I've met these guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tori, you got thoughts on that? The problem with, with translating this type of, of project to a larger scale is that it loses that organic flavor, that natural mm-hmm. development and progression of community relationships. And trust is built slowly over time. Mm-hmm. And so by trying to take this same idea and, and scaling it up tenfold, saying we're going to do this at you know 10 locations rather than one location, you lose the ability to to nurture and foster those individual relationships. And so I think if it's going to be scaled up, it would have to be people from the local community that start doing this work. I think mm-hmm. people coming in from the outside is not going to translate as well. It has to be, you know, you're in our backyard, therefore we care about you. We're we're community, we're neighbors. Um, and so yeah. that I think you're onto something, Wendy. With like this is something policy is not necessarily going to be able to fix. It has to be boots on the ground, people from the community building up our own communities. And we will say, if anyone wants to know what we did and what didn't work and what did work, we will cheerfully sit down with them and let them start their own project yes. along these lines. I. I honestly think this is the only way this works. Each one teach one. This is not this is not a federally viable program. This is medical schools going, hey. Right. right. So we actually had the opportunity to talk to a really lovely community organizer out of Charlottesville, um, Ms. Johnson. And oh, yeah. she she's just a fountain of knowledge and of, of little stories. And those little stories tell really big stories within them. So she was talking about this gentleman who was hired on by, I think it was the city council, right, Wendy? Uh-huh, yeah. And his job was to get to know the neighborhood. So he would walk a beat every day, saw the same people every day. They did not give him the time of day every day, but... At a certain point, they started recognizing him. They started waving. They started calling out, good morning. Why don't you come sit on my porch with me for a minute? And so the time and patience that's required to foster those deep, meaningful relationships has to be organic. You have to put in the time. And that's something that we've noticed that some people that may be interested in collaborating with us on this project, they want it to be done... Immediately. And I understand that. I want it to be, you know, magic, boom, solved. We've saved everybody. But that's not the way it works. And 
part of, of the beauty of this project is that you get to watch it bloom over time. And walking that beat, getting to know people, waving good morning, sitting with them on their porch, all of those kinds of things are requirements for the success of community projects like this. And the, the, frankly, the federal government uh, won't have time to do all of that stuff. So mm -hmm. it's up to us as members of these communities. If a medical school or nursing school or other type of program wanted to be sure their students understand the barriers that their patients will experience, mm -hmm. what could that school do? Go to the store. Mm. Go to the store. Um, so, for example, Inman Village, we've talked about the two stores that are there, Dollar General, and then the family discount store. Go with your physical body, be in that store. Look at what people are buying. Look at what's on the shelves. Look at what's out of stock. So you can tell what people are buying. Look at what's available. And that simple exercise of putting eyes on products that are on the shelves in these particular locations is extremely educational. Because there are some items there. For example, like they've got almond milk out the wazoo. All the almond milk you can ever imagine. Different types of like non-dairy milks. For, um, for a dollar. Right. It, like insanely affordable from my perspective. But why aren't people purchasing that? That's a question that still needs to be answered in my personal opinion. But also in terms of looking at the ingredients that are in the items that are the more popular items. Um, something that uh, is really popular at the discount store is um, uh, vitamin water. Vitamin water, because it has vitamin on the label and it has water on the label. So logically, I think, okay, this is a better choice for me than soda. But my students went and picked a bunch of these these sodas, single can sodas, different sodas that are available, um, soft drinks, and compared them to vitamin water in terms of pH level and found that the vitamin water was actually comparable, if not more acidic than the sodas that people were drinking. So what that means is that vitamin water is also having a negative impact on dental health, demineralization of teeth, leading to periodontal disease. So this is a kind of more nebulous question, but the point is that going and looking at what people are purchasing and what is available on the shelf is like the single greatest educational moment that you can give to somebody who is interested in actually making a, a difference in terms of nutrition in underserved communities. All right, so my last question, question I ask all my guests, and I'll let Wendy go first. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? I would make all of the program directors of medical schools and residencies go live for a month in a housing project without their salaries. Mm -hmm. Tori, what about you? Oh, that's a difficult question because I'm, I'm not a, a person that thinks like, ah, here is the one answer. Um, I, what would I do? What would I do? If I could fix 
this issue. I think it would be a matter of improving minimum wage, of making everyone have access to affordable um, health care. A, a living wage is like the biggest deal for that. Um, because the minimum wage has not kept up with inflation or the way that costs change. I'm not an eco- I'm not an economics person by any means, but that is uh, something that would immediately make a huge difference for many many people. Um, not only in terms of affordability of food, but also in availability of healthcare. They could afford to take a day off of work and drive to, for example, we're in Wise, so the nearest like health complex if you need more complex services is in Bristol. That's 45 minutes away. So I would have to take off a full day of work to go, for example, get a mammogram. And raising the minimum wage would would immediately give people more of a financial cushion to fall back on should they have um, health needs. And you know, relevant to that, Beth, I'm going to amend my answer. I would add to the program directors and the medical student directors, medical school directors, every elected official to a state or federal Congress, they'd have to spend a month there without their salaries. Yes. That would be good for them. This is what it's like firsthand Mm -hmm. on food stamps. Now let's talk about policy. Yeah. Yep. I, I, there, there was some politician a few years ago that, that accepted a challenge from a constituents to l- live off of food stamps for a month. And I think he made it like three days and said, okay, I get it. <laughs> well done. Um, before we leave, Beth, at some point, we also need to acknowledge a brilliant woman named Glenda Belinsky. Uh, Tori, do you want to do oh, that? Oh, yes. She's you, a you gem. Miss Glinda, as I like to call her respectfully, she is the person that has been the probably the single biggest door opener for us. And I mean that literally and metaphorically because she welcomed us into their community church. So we were running into problems with our Christmas market, which is all the kids got to come pick out, you know, some items for people on their Christmas list. It was extremely cold during that time of year up here in Wise and, and Appalachia. And so Miss Glenda allowed us to use the church chapel and welcomed us into that space and said, you can use this space however you want and has been bringing people to events. She brings her grandkids. She's, she's a community organizer. I don't think that she would refer to herself as a community organizer because she's just doing what Miss Glenda does. And that's beautiful. And and she's just an absolute gem of a person. I can't say enough nice things about her. Yeah. Excellent. We, we love those people who just make things happen. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, Wendy, Tori, thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to seeing what you're up to next. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's you. been great. That's Dr. Tori Mackle and Dr. Wendy Welch, encouraging everyone to develop a better understanding of the barriers that exist for too many of our community members. You might also want to check out two of Dr. Welch's latest publications. Her most recent book is COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories, which does a deep dive into how conspiracies around COVID developed and spread faster than the virus itself. 
the other, Masks, Misinformation, and Making Do, which is about Appalachian healthcare workers and the COVID pandemic, is scheduled for release this winter. Yours truly wrote the opening chapter. Links to both books are in the show notes. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.